Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host, the content director at Word on Fire, and we are live recording this from the eternal city, Rome. I'm here sitting across a little table from Bishop Robert Barron, the new Dr. Bishop Robert Barron. We'll talk about that here in a moment. Bishop Barron, good to be with you. Hey, Brandon. Always great to be with you. We've done a lot. We've if we just landed in Rome yesterday. It feels yeah. like five days I think ago. About a week ago, yeah. Yeah, but you've been doing some great things, and I wanted to share many of them here with our listeners. So, uh, first of all, we landed in Rome after these long flights. You coming from California with with Joe Glor, our producer, me coming from Orlando. But then uh, one of the first things we were able to do, we landed on Ash Wednesday. Yeah. And before we arrived, I said, what, what are we going to do about Mass? And you said, hey, you know, uh, Pope Francis usually, or the Pope usually says Mass uh, on Ash Wednesday and Santa Sabina. We were able to get tickets there. Tell a little <laughs> bit about that experience. Yeah, I knew about this, you know, from um, previous experience. And I said, well, as long as we're there on Ash Wednesday, why don't we try and get in? And frankly, I didn't think it'd be that hard. I thought, you know, it's a big old basilica that we just kind of, you know, slip in and be there. Well, of course, it turned out to be rather difficult because there's a big crowd. and uh, But I've got some Dominican friends, and so I pulled some strings there, and we got tickets. And uh, I couldn't participate really the way a bishop is supposed to because I, I would have to brought the uh, what's called a choir dress, which is a very elaborate uh, dress, and uh, I didn't have that. So what I did is I just went with uh, you and with Joe, and uh, <laughs> we got through a lot of police barricades, thanks in part to my being a bishop and in part to... Uh, uh, our friend Veronica, who's our fixer over here, and she can, you know, speak Italian to everybody. And so we we finally got in the church, but then we were shown these seats like way in the back corner behind pillars, and we basically see nothing. But I had the the magic uh, pectoral cross on, right. you know, the bishop's cross. That opens cross. all doors. And uh, the Italians, it's interesting, especially liturgically, we've got a very clear sense of like order and hierarchy, and it just offended sensibilities uh, to our favor that a bishop was sitting way in the back of the church. So we were kind of being invited ever further up into the church. And finally, we got um, really splendid seats, right, right off the aisle, and you know we'd see everything. And the procession, which included a lot of Dominican friars and then a lot of uh, bishops and cardinals. And finally, Pope Francis came right by us. So it was cool. And it was uh, uh, the liturgy with the Pope, and then we'd, we received ashes. in the European style, on, on your head, not on your forehead, but like on the top of your head. Um, anyway, it was, it, was, uh, it was a great way to begin our trip. You know, it's so different being here in Italy and seeing the way people reverence bishops and priests. Not saying they don't do that in America, but it's on a different level here. When we were going through these police barricades, Veronica, an Italian, says, oh, we need to get through because we have a bishop. And one of the policemen goes, let me see. And yeah. so you had to open up the door and That's you right. kind of had to flash your pectoral cross <laughs> yeah. credentials. And, and then they, they let they us said, go. Okay. Yeah, yeah, go. yeah. Um, you know, one thing that struck me about that mass, I've never been to the to, to mass with a pope. And when we're sitting in there, I'm thinking, here's the successor of Peter, the source of unity of the church in the church. I mean, in some ways, that's in direct continuity with the earliest apostles Mm -hmm. gathering around St. Peter himself. I thought the exact same thing uh, when the pope was um, consecrating the Eucharist. It it hit me, especially yesterday, for some reason. I thought, here's the successor of the man who was there at the Last Supper. You know, right next to the Lord when he uh, consecrated the first Eucharist. And right, we're in this continuity. And the church with all its flaws and all of its problems over the centuries. But strangely, and it's mysterious, it's a great mystery, that we're in this clear, unbroken continuity between Peter sitting next to Jesus at the Last Supper 
and the successor of Peter, whom we were with yesterday, doing the same thing, saying, do this in memory of me, you know, the words that Peter heard. So I, yeah, I found that very moving, too. In that church, the Santa Sabina church, there's this area of marble on the ground where it has some markings and there's a big crack through it, but the markings say this is the spot where St. Dominic lay prostrate praying. Mm -hmm. And the Dominican friars told us that every night he would be in that church laying on his stomach praying to the Lord, and the other friars would come in and kind of sneak in and see what (laughs) Dominic was up to or what he was praying. They said they would hear grumblings and moanings and he'd be praying. And again, that also struck me in light of our Word on Fire movement. You've said often that in times of crises in the church, it's people like Dominic who rise up through spiritual activity, not right. only through practical, pragmatic, you know, procedures and changes. I, you've said many times over this trip that that's what we need to get ourselves out of this current crisis. Yeah, I agree with that. And uh, Dominic's a good example. You know, he's often paired with Francis. They, they rise around the same time. And in response, not to quite the same uh, concern, but, you know, see, generally speaking, a time of of crisis and corruption in the church. In, in the case of Francis, it was probably the materialism of things. In Dominic's case, it was a real intellectual corruption, a kind of cultural corruption. And so they, they respond to those crises, and they did it with a back-to-basics evangelicalism, both Dominic and Francis. Uh, we know Francis, of course, of poverty, but poverty, too, with the Dominicans. They were a begging order, the mendicants. Um, in Francis' case, I think it's living out evangelical joy and poverty and so on. For Dominic, it's preaching, right? It's the preaching of the, of the good news. Um, they did what Jesus did. See, that's always the thing. That's always what you do. And they were great saints. And, uh, uh, but that's what's needed today, I think, is, is, uh, is an evangelically inspired response to the crisis of our time, which is a crisis of, of infidelity in a, a number of senses, right? Kind of a moral infidelity, certainly, but also, a, you know, the... the falling away from the faith. It's the secularism and relativism. That's a kind of intellectual infidelity. And so, yeah, we need the same thing. So we started off with that really special experience, that treasure of celebrating Mass with the Pope to kick off Lent. But then we got some rest, tried to recover from the jet lag. And this morning, you woke up and we marched over to the Angelicum Mm. uh, for a very special event. First of all, tell us about the Angelicum. What is it? Why is it significant? The Angelicum is kind of a nickname. It's it's the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas in Orbe, right? So in the city of Rome. You have these great Pontifical Universities, the Gregorian, the Lateran, uh, San Anselmo, etc. And this is the Dominican University in Rome. It's been here for a long time. It's called the Angelicum as a sort of nickname because of the angelic doctor, St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, it's been a school that uh, has, you know, given rise to some great figures over the over the years. Uh, most recently, uh, Pope John Paul II was a student there, of the great Garrigou Lagrange, who for decades and decades lectured at the Angelicum. Um, so it's one of the great universities in in the Catholic world, and it's one that I have an association with, not because I went there, I didn't do my studies in Rome, but uh, I taught there one year when I was on. Um, uh, I was at the North American College as a, as a scholar in residence writing a book. And then I, uh, I went over there. I think it was, it was for about a six-week intensive course I taught at the Angelicum. So, um, and I, I know a number of the professors there, and I've had a, a you know, great affection for it. And so when they reached out to me and, and offered this honorary doctorate, I was you know, delighted, very happy to, to accept it. 
So we'll talk about that honorary doctorate here in a moment. That was the big event of this trip, the reason we're here. Um, but we started off the morning with a very special mass in this beautiful yeah. uh, chapel there. And the mass was even more significant because it's being held on the feast of St. Thomas Aquinas, according to the old liturgical calendar. It's the anniversary of his death. Right. So for centuries, March the 7th, the day Thomas died in 1274, was his feast day. They changed it uh, because it was always falling in Lent. And uh, now this is, we were, uh, no, of course, we're, we're just starting Lent, of course. And so the Dominicans felt, and the, the wider church felt, wouldn't it be good to celebrate Thomas in a less penitential time? So they moved it to January 28th, which it is now. That's the day his body was, they say, translated to Toulouse, where it's finally buried. Anyway, so March 7th, though, is the day of Thomas's death. It's a very important anniversary. And so they were able to switch it today, you know, kind of following Dominican practice. So I had the, the great privilege of being able to celebrate that Mass. And when they approached me about it, I had the impression it was like just a little simple, you know, for a few people, a uh, little daily Mass before the big ceremony. So I said, oh, sure, I'd be happy to say Mass. But I get there today, of course, the whole Dominican world is there, and it's just packed to the gills with students and priests and people from all over the place. So it was very moving. And then beautiful music. They had the you know kind of Gregorian chant, and they had polyphony and uh, gorgeous music, and the gorgeous, very kind of Baroque setting of that church. And I was able to preach um, about Thomas from a, a personal standpoint, in my own kind of relationship to Thomas in my own life, the difference he's made. And I talked about the, the view from the hilltop, which is the... Tell, tell us that story that you yeah. shared about that. Yeah, it's cool. That was about 15 years ago when I was... Um, I was over here to give a talk at the North American College. And it was the next day, the day after the talk. So kind of, you know, the pressure's off and everything. And I went with a, a great guy. He died a couple years ago, Monsignor Roger Wrench, who was a priest from Milwaukee, of all places. But he ended up here in Rome and, and for decades and decades lived and worked in Rome. And a sweet guy, and he, he knew the city really well. He knew the history of Rome. And so I set off with him as the driver and guide. And then with me were two great Dominican friends. One is uh, Father Jim Quigley, who's now at Providence College. He's retired. Um, and then Father Paul Murray, who's my great uh, Dominican friend here in Rome. So the four of us set out that day on a beautiful um, Roman winter day. It was like in February, I think. But it was bright, sunny, and we drove out of Rome to do two things, to see where Thomas was born and where he died. So he went to Rocca Seca. It's, it's between Rome and Naples, down that way. And um, uh, we got there, and, and uh, the car only goes to a certain point on the mountain. Then you have to get out and climb. Not like that climbing the Himalayas, I mean, but you have to sort of walk your way up the mountain. So Paul and I did, Father Paul and I did. And we got to the top, and there's the ruins of Rocca Seca, which is the castle of the Aquino family, and that's where Thomas was born. But you look out, I didn't expect this really, you look out at this just spectacular Italian countryside, you know, and it was this real bright sunny day. And I said spontaneously to, to Paul, this is the view from the hilltop. This is what Thomas saw as a kid. And in his uh, later writings, he said, the, the wise person, the person of sapientia, right, is the one that sees things from the standpoint of the highest cause, the first cause. You see from the hilltop. Uh, it's like when you take off an airplane and suddenly you get, oh, there's the overview. Now I see, oh, how that fits together and how, how the city is configured. So the wise person goes to the standpoint of the highest cause and views life, right? And I just said in my homily that what most of us sinners do is we see our lives from a very low point of vantage. 
And so we see it in terms of our, you know, rivalries or our, our frustrated desires or our, you know, I'm not as rich as I wanted to be or as famous as I wanted to be or whatever it is. But that's to see the world in a very distorted, narrow way. But now go to the standpoint of God. Uh, how does God see the world? How do you fit into God's plan? Now do Baltazar. It's not the ego drama, but the theodrama. So I said, that's what Thomas, I think, gave me in my life was a consistent, at least summons to see the world from, uh, from the hilltop. You also shared that story, which you've shared a few times in, in a couple books as well. Maybe listeners of the podcast know it about how you were first grabbed by God through yeah. Thomas Aquinas as a 14-year-old. Yeah, tell, tell I, that again. I told that story briefly, too, in the homily about uh, being a freshman at Fenwick High School, a great Dominican high school outside Chicago. And uh, one of the young friars uh, presented an argument for God's existence. And it was, um, I don't know, it was life-changing is, is, is the only way I can put it. It set me on the path I've, I'm still on you know, to this day. And it gave me a fascination for God, I would say, a sense of God's reality. And uh, I talked about, as a kid, as a 14-year-old, going to the library and getting these books on Thomas Aquinas and barely knowing what I was reading, but it, it started this process. Um, that It's still going on in my life, you know. And Thomas has been like my greatest spiritual friend over the course of my life. And uh, the one that's made the greatest difference Merton said that, I remember uh, in the Seven Story Mountain, that when, when you find a saint, you don't just find a hero, you found a friend. And that's the great thing about our relationship to the saints. Uh, and I really, I believe that, because it, it, it was a grace. I'm a 14-year-old kid that liked to play baseball. You know, I went to Mass with my parents, but I, I wasn't particularly into religion or anything. Uh, and then like this, a grace, it came as a gift. I wasn't expecting it, certainly didn't deserve it in any way. But there it came, you know. And uh, my life has been, has been determined by that. It's, it's under the aegis of that grace, that gift I was given. So I find that deeply mysterious and, um, and uplifting. I think the saints do that. I think the saints just say, uh, okay, <laughs> I'm taking over. And uh, uh, who knows how that plays. And then you think of all the people, Brandon, in the course of the work that we do, you know, who are then uh, enlivened in different ways. And it started with that mm. moment with this goofy 14-year-old kid coming in from recess and hearing this thing. Um, and then the, the ramifications over the, over the years. So that's the way, you know, in the economy of grace, things work. Whenever you tell that story, it makes me reflect on the interactions in my own life and think any off-chance word that I speak to somebody or any off-chance encounter could be this mm -hmm. pivotal moment in yeah. someone's life. Like when that friar woke up that morning to teach that class, right. probably just another day, just <laughs> another kid. Right, and and you know I've uh, had not seen him for many many years. His name is Father Tom Paulson, and uh, I, I met him now. Finally, it was just a few years ago in St. Louis. And uh, did he know that 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 was him? That I he think, had that effect. I think he had heard me tell that story or had written about it. So I, I think he was clued in. But but I thought about that too. That um, who knows? Maybe he was in a bad mood that day, or maybe you know it was like oh in this class I got teaching these bozos, and you know they're not going to get this and. And maybe he laid that out, and, and he looked out, and, and indeed, I'd say 99% of that class probably went like, okay, well, when, are we, when is school going to be over? And So, right, you never know. My, my friend, the late, great uh, Ed Oaks, talked about that as the, the Ambrose instinct. You know, that Ambrose is preaching in Milan, and into that cathedral comes this, uh, he wasn't a kid, but this young man, uh, Augustine, who's um, you know, a spiritual searcher, but he's not by any means a Catholic. And he's pursuing a career and all this stuff. Came to, to listen to what he thought was going to be very fine rhetoric from, from Ambrose. 
And of course, the preaching of Ambrose is what opened Augustine's heart and led him. And I remember, so Father Oak said, you know, to, it was preaching at the seminary. Uh, remember that, guys, when you're going through your life as a priest and you're preaching, you never know who's wandering into the church. And you might think, okay, I'm tossing off a homily, or that wasn't very good, or, you know, I'm bored today, or whatever. What's it all about? But you don't know. You don't know. Augustine might have walked in that day. Augustine could be out there, some kid, uh, and that's making a huge difference. So that is a great thing to think about. So after Mass this morning, we all gathered in this big, beautiful lecture hall, I guess mm-hmm. you would call it. It's kind of the aula. Aula, okay. It's a half circle, stadium seating, fits about a thousand people. But it was from there, as you mentioned earlier, that Garagou Lagrange lectured mm-hmm. to the young Carol Wojtyla. Yeah. Wojtyla probably studied there, was in sure. there, spoke there. Um, they told us beforehand the last time this place was full was when then Pope John Paul II came and visited the, his alma mater and, and spoke there. First of all, how'd that feel being in that room to receive this honorary doctorate? Yeah, it was wonderful. I'd been in, when I was here years ago to give this talk, I was in the smaller aula. There's another one that's like it. Lovely, it's a beautiful room, but maybe, I don't know, maybe it's half that size, smaller. So I've been in there, but I'd never even seen this big aula till yesterday. And um, it was very moving to me to be in there and to see it. And uh, you mentioned Gary Gu, you know, who taught here for many, many years. Uh, I've known a couple people in my life who were taught by Gary Gu Lagrange and talked about the experience of being with him. One of the great Thomas of the 20th century. But then I, I was thinking very often as I, as I was sitting there before the talk and then giving it, I wonder where Carol Wojtyla sat out here, you know, this, this young man um, who had already at that point in his life been through a couple different versions of hell, you know, and yet there he was studying for the priesthood and who would have this titanic impact on the, on the world. You know, this, I, I was thinking this great victim of communism who would become the means by which this awful system would collapse. And there he was. You know, again, think about that. Think of Garigou Lagrange one day lecturing in that aula and out there is this, you know, Polish kid. And he said, I wonder if he even understands what I'm saying. But... Um, the difference that made, you know? I thought of that a lot today. And Wojtyla has been oddly haunting me. I was telling you about, uh, I opened up my breviary for Lent, you know, yesterday, and I have that little card of the hipster John Paul II with the glasses <laughs> and the berets outside the Pantheon in He Greece. was hipster before hipster. It was right. even cool, and, which makes him extra hipster. And then, then today, <laughs> just before the talk, I was in that little room where I was divesting with the Blessed Sacrament, and the door closed, and on the side is a, is a picture of Wojtyla, you know? So he was kind of following me around today. Of course, the reason you were in that room was to receive an honorary doctorate. And we don't talk so much on this show about your many academic accomplishments. I think a lot of people listening to this show know you through your YouTube videos, your your books. But for most of your career, most of your adult life, you've been involved in the academic world. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, what, what does it mean as a, as a scholar, as an academic, to receive an honorary doctorate? I'm guessing that's a pinnacle achievement. Well, it's lovely. It's a lovely thing, you know, and it truly is a great honor. Um, it's a school, as they were saying today, you know, it's the, it's the school's highest possible honor. And so for a place like this to give that um, is, is a, it's a wonderful thing. And it's a ratification of the work you do. That's how I, I always feel about it. It's sort of, I, in a way, you feel kind of old because it's sort of like a lifetime achievement award, you know. Um, but no, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. And, and I've received a few in my life, and it's always a great joy. This was a especially sort of a peak experience for me, you know. As a part of the reception of the honorary doctorate, you were also invited to give a talk. And mm-hmm. um, the talk was a very high-level talk on 
the divine generosity. Uh, I was hoping maybe we could just talk through it on a, on a more accessible level that people can get. So give, give us a summary of the main point you're making. Well, the point I was making was I was setting up a contrast between some of the postmodern thinkers who have um, problematized, who have, <laughs> who have uh, pointed out the anomaly involved in gift giving. And, and the idea, it is something you actually pretty readily recognize. That when you, when you receive a gift, for example, um, you feel a kind of obligation to return the favor in some way. Like, well, I better give that person a gift. Or at the very least, I should write a thank you note, right? There's like an obligation. And so some of the philosophers have reflected on this, that, that actual gift giving in the sense of something truly without strings attached, something truly, utterly generous is effectively impossible in the world because we kind of lock each other in the sense of, of uh, obligation. You know, I've got to return the favor. And so egotism always finds its way in there. Well, in a nutshell, my argument was that, um, that God properly understood as that reality which cannot benefit from a gift. In other words, God's, God's being as such, that he can't improve in any way. God can't benefit from something outside of himself. Therefore, God can give with utter generosity, right? God, God can give, and there, there's no expectation of return. There, there's no uh, uh, need that God has, see? And so God can give perfectly, now, how about us? Well, we can do it, Aquinas argues, only when we have within us the infused Holy Spirit. So I, I play with the fact that in Aquinas, the Holy Spirit's proper name is Donum, the gift, right? The gift of God, Donum Dei. Um, only when the Spirit is in us are we able to love with the same love with which God loves. In other words, one that's utterly generous. And then I tied it finally to Jesus, right? Because the great teaching of the Lord that can seem so weird and utopian and, you know, love your enemies. And, and when you give a party, don't give it to those who can give you a party in return. See, where's that coming from? But precisely this problem. Don't play this game of, oh, I'll give you understanding, of course, that you'll give me something back. I'll be nice to you, understanding, of course, now you're obligated to be nice to me. Jesus breaks that, you know. Um, love the one, in other words, your enemy, who will not love you back. Be generous to the one who can't pay you back. Good. That's the test of love. But see, it means you, you've you been supernaturalized. That you, You're now loving with the love that God is. So anyway, that, that was my basic argument. That actually this little anomaly around giftedness is, is illuminating. I said it's like the grit inside the oyster around which the pearl can form because it's like the... It's like the little point of puzzlement that leads you to say, oh, yeah, that really only God is capable of a true gift. And there was a little Q&A afterward, and somebody asked a really good question, which was, okay, if this sort of gift giving is impossible on the natural level, mm -hmm. but it's possible in the, in the supernatural level, how do we get there? And you made an astute observation. You said, well, it's not like we can just work harder to yeah. get better at it. We have to pray for it. It's a, very, it's a very interesting part of the Christian mystery, I think, because, you know, Thomas Aquinas is an Aristotelian following you know, Aristotle. And Aristotle is a virtue ethician, we'd say. You know, uh, the cultivation of the virtues is key to the moral life. Okay. Now, how do you cultivate the virtues? Well, Aristotle says habituation. 
The same way that, how do you learn how to throw a baseball? Well, practice and get a good teacher and then do it over and over and over again. Get the golf swing ingrained in your body. You can do it over and over again. It becomes habitual and then becomes a kind of virtue. So you look at a great pro golfer, you say, that guy's got the virtue of, of the golf swing, right? Well, same is true in the moral order, says Aristotle. How do you become more courageous? Put yourself in difficult situations and, and rise to the occasion. That's why, you know, watch how we train kids a lot is, is in a controlled way, a relatively safe way. You do that. You're calling forth courage from them. Like, can you face this challenge? Um, so that's habituation. Same with, you know, prudence and the other virtues. Okay. But then here's the funny thing. The three most important virtues are called the theological virtues, namely faith, hope, and love. Can you get those through habituation? And the answer is no, you can't. You can't, like, practice faith. You can't really, pr- you, can, you can love. That's true. Once the, once the grace is in you, now you can love. But it's not like you've, trained yourself to love you ask for it and you receive the sacraments i would say and when you get the supernatural life in you then you're able to act in this way it's very interesting it's a very interesting puzzle because thomas doesn't repudiate the natural virtues and he'd say great off you go sure cultivate those as much as you want but the supernatural virtues it's a different game we're playing with 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 them it's a it's a in a way frustrating to people like us, you know, kind of motivated and let me just do it. Tell me what to do. How do I get faith, hope, and love? You can't, man. You, you, you can't. It's not a program for that. I, I might say um, go to Mass. Make sure you go to Mass. Go to confession a lot. Go to uh, receive the sacraments. Uh, beg. Ask God, you know. Lord, Lord, um, supernaturalize me. Uh, change my heart. I've got a heart of stone. Make it a heart of flesh. But I can't do that, you know. So that's why it's very interesting to me, Brandon, because that's, you know, hey, I, I don't care. I, I, you know, who needs to go to Mass? God's love anyway, and I'm fine. Just stay away from Mass. Yeah, but it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. That's how you get it. That's how you, you deepen your faith, hope, and love. Uh, I don't bother praying, you know, who needs that? And God loves me anyway. Well, okay, but then that's how you get it, man. That's how you get supernaturalized, is you, you go before the Blessed Sacrament, or you take up your rosary, and you beg, you know? So uh, that's a very interesting dynamic, I think, in the Christian spiritual life. Well, it's time now for our listener question, and we have precisely one listener in this room right now. (laughs) It's our producer, Joe Glore. So, Joe, uh, what's your question for Bishop Barron? Bishop, on Saturday and Sunday, we're going to be going to Orvieto and Viterbo. I've never been to either of those locations. Oh, yeah. What do we have to look forward to there? Oh, they're, they're great little cities. Um, Orvieto is, is the home of one of the most spectacular cathedrals in Europe, I think. This uh, Italian Gothic Orvieto Cathedral, the facade of which is, is like a masterpiece. But also within that cathedral are the great Luca Signorelli frescoes of The Last Judgment. And I've talked about them. We filmed them for the Catholicism series. Uh, the most magnificent depiction of the Antichrist in, in all of Western art, I think, is there, where you see the devil kind of insinuating himself in such a way that it looks for all the world like, oh, that's the Antichrist's arm. But then we look very closely, he's whispering in, in the, the devil's whispering in the Antichrist's ear, and the arm is actually the devil's arm. But it's a beautiful depiction of how the, how the dark power works, you know. Anyway, that's Orvieto. It's a lovely little city. But like Viterbo, the other town we're going to, it was a site of the papal um, uh, court in the Middle Ages. So Thomas Aquinas, 
after his first Parisian sojourn in the 1250s, uh, comes down to Italy. And he traveled for a time with the papal court. And in those days, like kingly courts and papal courts would move around a lot, partially because of uh, the plague. They, if, if the plague was breaking out, they would just move. Partially, honestly, to clean out the palace. So this is, you know, before we had all things we have today, palaces got kind of kind of funky and, and gross. And so if you were rich enough, you just up and go somewhere else, and they would clean out the the palace, you know. So the papal court moved around a lot. And, and two of the places they went, Orvieto and Viterbo. I'd never been to Viterbo. That's what, one reason I really wanted to see it. A great old medieval city. Thomas was there. And then finally we're going to Banya Reggio. Um, here I'll pay tribute to the great Ewart Cousins. Uh, died oh, about, I don't know, five, ten years ago now. Great Franciscan scholar, and he loved Bonaventure. As I do, too. And Bonaventure's birthplace was Banya Reggio, which is an old, it means, you know, the the bath of the king it, it goes it goes back to roman times but then became this this medieval christian city and that's where the great saint bonaventure was born and so that's up in that area too they're kind of day trips from rome so we're going to go to those three uh, cities well thanks for listening to this word on fire show episode live from rome couple things one we're in the middle of lent so don't forget if you haven't already signed up visit lentreflections.com there you can sign up to receive free daily email reflections from Bishop Barron. It's a great way to supercharge your Lent. Second, we mentioned last week that we've started a new Patreon page. You can find it at wordonfireshow.com slash patron, or just go to patreon.com and search for Bishop Barron and find it there. This is a way to support the Word on Fire show. If you like this podcast, if you'd like to help it reach more people and improve the quality of it, consider becoming a patron. We'll send you free books. You have exclusive Q&As and and episode recommendations from Bishop Barron. We even are soliciting input from our patrons on future episodes. So if you'd like to join us on this mission of evangelizing through the podcasting world, visit wordonfireshow.com slash patron. Well, thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week on the Word on Fire show.